you're not there, you can turn to Exodus chapter 6. The concept that I want you to begin with this morning is being able to hold two things in your mind at the same time. One is that we're looking at human history when we open up our Old Testament. These are actual historical events that took place with people in certain cultures at certain times, but at the same time, God uses history as a picture of what he wants us to learn spiritually. And that's the thrust when you get to the book of Exodus. What God accomplishes in this particular portion of his scripture is something that he will continually come back to all the way throughout the Old Testament. I am the God who delivered you out of Egypt. Not only was it an incredible accomplishment from a historical standpoint for the Israelites, but what God is teaching us is about slavery and something far worse than physical slavery for 400 years in a foreign land. God is saying that your your spiritual slavery because of sin is what he wants us to understand and that he is the one that, that delivers us. So not only was God gracious to the Israelites, but he's actually teaching the world what his character is like. And this is a a book and an account that even the secular world can't ignore because it was such a major shift in human history. So what I want us to do as we begin, I want to show you just briefly about four or five different verses in the Old Testament, most of which are in, in Exodus. And I want you to see if you can pull out the common theme or the common language in all of these verses, and then you'll get an understanding of the thrust of what God is wanting us to learn here in this particular book. So let's start in Exodus chapter 6, and I'll read verse 7. It says, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Turn to chapter 8, verse 10. Then he said, tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. For I have hardened his heart in the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 4. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored among, excuse me, I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know 
that I am the Lord. And they did so. What's the common theme in those verses? Yes. There's a hardening. That's true. There's another phrase. Yep. Yeah, I am the Lord, and there's one other phrase that goes along with that. There is no other. True. Yeah. That you may know. All these things are correct. God is doing this miraculous work so that you may know what He's like, that His power is on display. And so in human history, He accomplished something with the Israelites but he includes it in our Bible so that you may know what God is like. And as you expand on what we understand from the book of Exodus, so that you may know that you are in spiritual slavery because of your sin and that you need a deliverer. And just so you know, we're not going to take time to, to, to chase this all the way throughout the Old Testament because it's everywhere. But just to give you a, a sample, turn to Psalm 81 and look at verse 10. Hundreds of years later, through the psalmist, I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So here in the, the Psalms, he's, he's reminding us about his character. This is what I did for my people. This is how I provided for those who were in duress. And he says, I am the God who accomplished this. And so just let that, let that understanding sink into your thinking and into your mind. If, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has made known to you what he is like in incredible ways in human history. It's actual history, but it's also a picture so we can learn what he's like. So with that kind of as the, as the foundation of what we're seeing in Exodus, I want to do an overview of this book, and then we'll look at a key passage together, and then we'll end looking at the shadows and promises of the coming of Christ, specifically in the book of Exodus. So let's look at the stats here briefly. Book number two in the Old Testament, part of the Pentateuch, also written by Moses, and it might interest you to know from a historical standpoint that Pharaoh, as the leader that Moses confronted, is not just a nameless leader from history. You guys realize that's a title, right? That's not a name of somebody. It's, it's like calling somebody a, a president or whatever the case may be. So there's been a lot of different Pharaohs. But as we kind of put together the, the timeline of, of the events of Exodus, and then we plug it into the historical events of the world at large, we're fairly confident that the specific leader that we're talking about is a pharaoh by the name of Amenhotep II. And so as you're looking at human history, you can actually look at his reign and, and you'll understand that this, this is not just an isolated event that takes place in our Old Testament, that this is taking place in uh, the world around us. In fact, one of the, the tools that I have is called a Bible handbook. In one of those, uh, for each of the, the, the books of the Bible, it has a section in there called In Other Parts of the World. And it kind of reminds you that these things are taking place in 
in human history. And so in, in the book of Exodus, it says that the Iron Age in Syria, in Palestine, begins, and that also people in Mediterranean and Scandinavian countries are perfecting the art of shipbuilding. So even if you guys are taking uh, historical co uh, courses, whether in high school or if you do so in college and you're looking at world history, that the Exodus actually takes place during world history. And so we're seeing God's truth of redemption here. That's the central theme of the Old Testament. So let's look at the, the structure of this book. They're really going to divide it into two sections. There's a lot of things that take place in these 40 chapters. There's a, a great deal of material. There's a lot that happens in a very compressed amount of time. But if you were to break up the book into two major divisions, it would be chapters 1 through 18, which tells us that God is delivering Israel from slavery. So the first part of the book, if you remember the protection of Moses as a baby so that he's preserved, God raises him up as a leader. He then goes into exile for a long period of time until God then brings him back and he confronts Pharaoh. And the ten plagues that come upon Egypt, each one of those are directed at one of the false gods of Egypt. And the Lord is making a statement. So even, even though it's not the main theme of the book, the ten plagues directed at the false gods, God is telling us that he is the one and only God. And he still does that today, by the way. You guys remember in our study of, of the survey of the New Testament, when we got to the book of 1 John, 1 John ends in a very interesting way. The last line of his epistle is, my children, guard yourself against idols. You think, man, I kind of picture idolatry as the, the statues in the Old Testament and Israel's a nation, and then when, when God scattered them into exile, the 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 sin of idolatry as a nation was, was pretty much put to rest, and we kind of leave it in the past. And John reminds us that every sin that you commit is rooted in idolatry. You're worshiping something else. You're worshiping yourself. Something has taken place over God because God has spoken a commandment that you did not obey because you were obeying another authority. And so you have to guard yourself against Idolatry. God is saying, I will go after other gods in your life to expose these so that you can turn from them. And especially for those who are believers, God is going to bring about sanctification in your life because there are things that we in our flesh still tend to cling to and worship more than the one true God. And God does not share his glory with another, including you. He will not share his glory with you. And it's not good for you to try to take the glory to yourself. When God wants you to, to come under his commandments, it's because his law is, like James says, the, it's the law of liberty. It sets you free. And so the sin that you think you want never satisfies, always brings death, and always brings shame. And God says, I want to deliver you from that. So not only is his commands to worship him as the only true God, he deserves it, but he also knows that because you've been created to be a worshiper, that you should worship only him and no one else. So the first part of the book is, is bringing them out of slavery. He 
indicts the false gods of Egypt in the process. The second half of the book, chapters 19 through 20, the first major stop they make as a nation, where are they at uh, geographically speaking? Where do they go? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. So they stop at the mountain and God gives his revelation. So revelation at Sinai. The rest of the book is the unfolding of, of God's law and the expounding of the law in all of its different applications. So you take all of God's commandments and he has summarized them in what we know as the Ten Commandments. And he's teaching his people. Now remember, think about what the people were when they were brought to Mount Sinai. They were slaves. There was no unity as a nation. There was, there was no civic understanding of how to operate as a people. I mean, think about all of your, your experiences of being a part of a, of a culture that you live in. Uh, you have a, a flow to life. You, you go to the store. You, you go to school. You spend time with friends. Like, none of that existed for the Israelites. They weren't a nation. They weren't a city. They weren't a people. And God is, is bringing them to Sinai, and, and it's a huge establishment as a nation. Seventy people went into Egypt. We learn that from Exodus chapter 1, verse 5. Seventy people. And initially it was to preserve because there was a famine. Three to four million people are exiting. So there's this huge wave of people going out of Egypt, and God brings them to the mountain. And now he says... I'm going to start instructing you. Here is my law. I want you to learn not only how to worship, but also how to live with one another. And so the rest of Exodus and also the book of Leviticus is the expanding of, of those Ten Commandments. And so that's why I've chosen this as our, our key passage. So turn back to Exodus chapter 20. And I want us to consider the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. This is such a foundational moment in the history of God's people. We need to understand the, the key aspects of what God is teaching us here. So before we get into the passage itself, I want you guys to flip your sheet over. You'll notice on the back there's a, a section for you to uh, take a a stab, that sounds a little violent, take a shot, that's also violent. Um, try to remember what the Ten Commandments are. Take your best remembrance without looking at the chapter. I know I've already had you turn there. But I want you guys to see if you can jot down how many of the Ten Commandments can you write down from memory. And by the way, if you can't remember them, that's okay. That's why we're doing a class. So take a couple minutes and, and write those down and we'll see if we can fill them in together. Give you about 30 more seconds if you're hopefully you're close. I see the wheels turning, which is great. Really tempted to show you guys the video this morning, the infamous video, but it works. You'll remember it once you see the video. I decided not to. All right, so the Ten Commandments are broken up. Commandments number one through four, and then five through ten. 
why do we divide them into these two divisions, to use my word twice in a row? Yes. Yeah, so these first four are our vertical relationship between us and the Lord directly. And these are about other people and our relationship to them. So how'd you guys do on remembering all 10? Think you got there? Got most of them anyway? What's uh, commandment number one? You can just say it. What? Uh, that's number two. I mean, it is related, but yeah. No other gods or God should be first. Good. No other gods before me. And then Kira, number two. No idols. You should not make any graven images. Okay, number three. Yeah, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Does that just mean not to swear using his name? I mean, it includes that. But what else does that mean? To not take God's name in vain. Any what? That's true. Any swearing. Yeah. So if, if you are a follower of the Lord, especially if you're a believer, everything you do is representing his name. And so if you live in a way that's sinful, you are taking his name in vain. You're emptying the meaning out of his name. That's a, uh, it's an all-sweeping commandment. Number four, remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Okay, number five. Why doesn't it just say obey your father and mother? Honors has to do with the heart. That's good. What, what else? Mm -hmm. Can you obey them without honoring them? Oh, yeah, because it's a heart issue, right? Okay, number six. Shall not kill. Seven. Shall not commit adultery. Number eight, do not steal. Nine, false witness, do not lie. And ten, do not covet. How'd you guys do on your ten? Yes. Yes. Great. Yeah, the word is kill in, in the text. But as you look at the way that the context is, you, as you follow the analogy of Scripture, there are moments where life can be taken because God has either you're defending somebody or you're following his command in war or whatever the case is. So the idea is in our term to murder, but the word 
in the Hebrew is actually to kill. So we follow that, that broader context. But that's a great point to bring up. Yes? On the same issue, mm -hmm. this, my text, is murder. And the footnote is it's causing human death through carelessness or negligence. Very good. If you guys remember that we, we spent almost 14 weeks on the Ten Commandments, and the only commandment that took two parts was this particular commandment because we were looking at the negligence piece. There's a lot of things that the law says, you know, when it says to, to build a railing at the top of your house so that you are not responsible for the accidental death of somebody. Those, <clears throat> excuse me, those principles are, are really important. And it is, it is important for us to think through those, those truths and those dynamics because that has a lot of implication for how we live our life and what we support and what we stand against. And so the, the translation of it being murder is, is um, accurate. The word literally is to kill, but as we understand the broader context of God's law, uh, the meaning is to take a life when it is not warranted and not permitted. So that's good. I'm glad you guys are thinking that way. So God takes all of his commandments and he summarizes it down to 10 which is amazing. And then also in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, Jesus then takes those 10 commandments and narrows them down to just two. I want you to listen to verses 34 and 40 here. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. As a side note, I love the way Christ answers here. The guy comes and says, Which is the greatest commandment? He's thinking Ten Commandments. And his motive is to test Christ, is to trap him. Jesus doesn't play by the rules. And he answers, outside of the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He goes, this is the foremost commandment. And then he says, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So as you guys are living your life, if you commit a sin... You are either not loving God or you're not loving people or both. Jesus says, if you learn to love God with all of your being and to love other people, you will keep yourself from sin. This is why we need Christ, by the way. Because as we go throughout our days, we don't perfectly love God the way that we should. And we don't love other people the way that we should. It is the, the condition of the heart that needs to be transformed. And only Christ can do that. So the key passage here, the unfolding of, of God's Ten Commandments, the, the, the ten categories in which every other truth of God can fit up underneath the, uh, his, his perfect wisdom is amazing. So I want you guys to consider a couple of key questions as we look at this book and we, we have our, our understanding expanded about the implications of, of the book of Exodus. 
Question number one is this. <clears throat> Do the Ten Commandments apply to the Christian life? You know, some of you might be thinking, well, why, would, why would we even ask that? There's a couple of reasons. One is that there are some people who clearly and directly teach that they don't. So we need to give a reasoned response and a reasoned answer to that type of, of biblical interpretation. The reason that they claim that is that if you look at the immediate context of the book of Exodus, who did God give the commandments to? To Israel. God was establishing his law in what is called the Old Covenant. Remember when Jesus came? He inaugurated the New Covenant in his blood, correct? So we're not Israel. We're not the chosen nation. We are no longer under the Old Covenant. And so some people have wondered, well, well, why are we taking these Old Testament principles and making them binding on the church today? And that's in my, my prayer when I opened this morning was, was asking God to give us discernment. What you guys have to be careful of when you go to your Old Testament is you can't just grab a passage and apply it to the Christian life. That's why some people get hung up with, all oh, the, these Christians are so inconsistent because they don't follow the Old Testament dietary laws. I've actually had that given to me by, by a non-believer in refutation of why he didn't believe the Bible. So why don't we follow the Old Testament dietary laws? We have to be able to give an answer for that. However, in handling the Old Testament and not wanting the old ceremonies and the old rituals to be binding on the church, we don't want to discard God's truth from the Old Testament. So that shows you the danger of not handling your Old Testament carefully. Can anybody think of a New Testament passage just on the dietary piece of why we're not concer concerned with clean and unclean foods? Yes. Exactly. So in the book of Acts, Peter's on the rooftop, the sheet comes down, God says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. It was a picture for Peter to understand that the, the Gentiles were no, no longer to be considered unclean people. But the root of that was that he was declaring the foods clean. In fact, Jesus did the same thing in his teachings in the Gospels. Thus he declared all foods clean. So when you go to your Old Testament and you read these dietary laws, you can't just say, okay, well, I need to apply that today. You have to think through context, and then you go to the New Testament to say, how does the New Testament apply these things? And that's your, your rule of interpretation. So back to the original question here, do the Ten Commandments apply to the Christian life today? Nine of the Ten Commandments are reinstated or restated in the New Covenant. So nine of the ten are binding on us. Anybody want to guess which one is not restated in the New Covenant? Yeah, the Sabbath is not retained under the, under the New Covenant. Now, you might ask, why? Why is that the only one? You have to do a little bit of understanding of, of the history of, of the Sabbath. Does anybody know for an Old Testament Jewish person, when did the Sabbath take place in the life of a Jew? Yes. Yeah, so sundown on Friday, 
till sundown on Saturday. That period of time was the Sabbath. So when they gathered together to worship, it was on Saturday. And so when we come to the New Testament, the church doesn't meet on Saturday. Why? Yes. Yes. Jesus rose on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. So he transforms this picture of rest into the true application of rest in salvation. Now we gather as the church. Guys, these things are important because you'll, you'll run into people that believe that we should still worship as the church on Saturday. And so biblically, why do we meet on Sunday and why do we refuse that, that model of, of worship? But I also want you to listen to what Paul says about the, the Sabbath day in Colossians chapter 2. This is verse 16. He says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, the things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the Sabbath in the Old Testament was a shadow, was a picture in human history of what God was going to do in accomplishing salvation for His people in Christ. And now that Christ has come, now that Jesus rose on the first day of the week and we gather as a church to celebrate His resurrection, the Sabbath is done with. Now, here's where you have to be careful. In the creation account, what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. Physically, God has not designed our body to work seven days a week. So there are some practical examples of how we are to function physically to make sure that our bodies are not uh, worn down. But also, more importantly than just the physical aspect, is the protection of the gathering of the Lord's Day. It's like we're setting aside work, not because it's the Sabbath, because it's the Lord's Day. It's a term that John uses in, in Revelation chapter 1 that we gather with his people and we're not to forsake the gathering together. And so those are the principles of why we gather on Sunday, why we don't work on Sunday. All those different pieces fit together, but it's not because of the Sabbath. We don't have time to go into it, but just an, another example for you to kind of chase through the, the Old Testament is tithing. What is the principle of tithing in the Old Testament is that binding for today for the church? The answer is no, but that's a, another discussion in and of itself. William, did you have a... Okay. So we have to be careful when we're in the Old Testament. We don't want to discard what is still binding. If there's moral principles, God doesn't change morally, but we also don't want to put on people ceremonies and rituals that are no longer under the new covenant. Does that make sense? So when you read your Bible, you have to have discernment and, and to divide it accurately. Second question is, why is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 such an important New Testament reference for us? So go ahead and turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul reaches back 
to this time frame in the nation of Israel when they've been released from slavery, they're out Mount Sinai, and he uses this historical event to teach us that these things are important for us to know today in the church. Look at verse, for context, start in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So now Paul is telling us, under the New Covenant, in the New Testament, study of the Old Testament is important. We look at what happened with the Israelites. Paul says these were examples for us. Look at how God responded to their choices because it is instruction for us that we don't crave the same evil things. So we don't discard the Old Testament. God uses human history as a picture for us spiritually. He says, look how they behaved. By the way, you're no better than the Israelites. Your heart craves evil things. You're an idolater. And you need the Lord Jesus Christ to break free from that. Because guys, he brought his people out of Egypt, the most referenced dramatic event in the Old Testament. And then when he brought them out into the wilderness, when they sinned, he killed the first generation. God was making a statement about holiness and saying, don't crave evil things. They're an example for us. Even as a believer, what did God do to the Corinthians when they mishandled the Lord's table? He says, there's an, a number of you that are sick, and some of you even sleep, which means that they died. God took the life of believers because they had chosen to sin. So don't ever take sin lightly. So have you turned from your sin and, and believed on Christ? Is there evidence of a heart that's been transformed and changed? Are you a new creation? Do you have new affections and new desires and a new conscience? There's one thing for someone to say, yep, I still, I still struggle with sin and, and you don't really care about it. That's not the evidence of a heart that's been changed. For someone that's a follower of Christ, you're going to be more like Paul in, in Romans chapter 7 where you, say, where you think, who is going to set me free from this body of death because I don't want to be this way anymore? Which attitude do you have towards sin? If you're flippant, you need to examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. So as we kind of round our, our study out here, I want us to look at a couple of examples from the book of Exodus where Christ is pictured and 
taught specifically in, in this Old Testament section of, of the Torah. There's a, a lot of different ways that we could go with this particular looking of, of the book of Exodus. Turn back to Exodus chapter 12. And the first one I want us to grab onto is the Passover. Does anybody want to give a 10, 15 second summary of, of what the Passover in the Old Testament, what it is and what it symbolized? Yes. Good. So it's the, it's the final plague. The angel of death was going to go through the land of Egypt, and God gave an opportunity for people to be spared from death. He said, take the lamb, sacrifice the lamb, take the blood and put it on the lintels and the doorposts of your door, of your house. And when the angel of death sees the blood of the sacrifice, he will pass over your house. So God was giving a, a way of escape through blood sacrifice. A real historical account, this actually took place, but it was a picture of what Christ was going to accomplish for us. I know I had you turn to Exodus 12. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26, and I want you to see the fulfillment of this picture of Christ in the New Testament. Matthew 26. We'll start in verse 26. And as, as we're reading this section, I want you to try to put yourself in the place of the disciples who they grew up as Jewish men celebrating the Passover every year of their life. This would have been so ingrained on their thinking and habits. And to hear what Jesus says here for the first time would have been shocking to them. Chapter 26, verse 26. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So all those years of celebrating the Passover, remembering that blood was shed for people to be spared from death, and then Jesus tells the disciples, by the way, it spoke of me, my body, my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. It probably would have taken some time for the disciples to absorb that as they're listening to him teach that. And then to see him to go and, and to be killed on the cross. And then they realize all of the... The, the historical imagery of the Passover that they, they knew by memory, they said it was all about Christ. He is the sacrificial lamb. We're so familiar with that language today as the church. When Jesus transformed the Passover into what we know as the Lord's table, which would become the communion table, 
the, the, the weight and force of all of those years of, of celebrating that as a nation, Jesus says it was just a picture. That I'm going to be able to deliver you from death because of my, my shed blood. We also learn about Christ in, in looking at the tabernacle. That was a huge piece of God's instruction when they were on the Mount Sinai. A couple of years ago, we, when we spent our time in the book of Exodus, we, we slowed down when we got to the tabernacle. There are a couple of pieces of that particular structure that the New Testament confirms speaks directly of Christ. But what I want us to, to grab on is, is the bigger understanding of the idea of the tabernacle. The, the dwelling place, what would eventually become the temple. The tabernacle was in the midst of the camp when they were in the wilderness. And God was communicating to the people that he wanted to dwell with them. So now when you come to John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes a verse under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that specifically is designed to take the reader's thinking back to the book of Exodus. In John 1.14, it says, the flesh, uh, well, let's just turn there so I don't misquote it from memory. John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and did what? dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now in the English, we lose the the force of what he's saying here. When John wrote this, he chose the word in the Greek that could have been translated as tabernacle. He took up residency. It was the idea that John wants us to make the connection between Jesus coming and dwelling among us as a fulfillment of the picture of the tabernacle being in the midst of the camp because God wants to be among his people. He desires to dwell with us and he can't do that unless he deals with the issue of sin because your sin separates you from God. And so Jesus came to take up human flesh, to pay for sin, so that you can dwell in his presence. The tabernacle was a historical, physical building, but it was a picture of what Jesus wanted to do with his people. He wanted to dwell among them. The last one I want you to see here, turn to Luke chapter 9. Just like John chooses certain terminology to take our minds back to the book of Exodus, Luke does the same thing here in chapter 9. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at verse 28. It says, Some eight days after these things, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and 
Elijah. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing what? The prophets. The Jewish people, when they hear the law and the prophets, they would have thought of the entirety of the Old Testament. So God's giving us a picture here. These resurrected saints appearing on the Mount of Transfiguration saying the entirety of the law is being fulfilled in the person of Christ. They're having this discussion on the mountain. Look at verse 31. Appearing in glory, what were they speaking about? They were speaking of his departure, which was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The Greek word for departure is exodus. So Luke writes this section about the transfiguration. It says, by the way, the whole book of Exodus, God delivering his people from slavery, real, historical, but it's a picture of what Christ was coming to do. When Jesus talks about his departure in Luke 9, how did he depart? What did he have to go through? The cross. The exodus is about the cross of Christ because he wants to pay for the sins of his people. Redemption, not just pictured in the Old Testament, but actually accomplished because Christ came for our salvation. So a couple things I want you to grab as we, as we wrap up this morning. Number one is, is don't overlook the pictures that God uses from history for you to reflect on your spiritual needs. It's easy to kind of see the Israelites and slavery in Egypt and all that as historical and distant and separate from you. God was saying these things are written for your instruction because without Christ, you are in spiritual bondage and you need to be delivered. And that's far worse than physical slavery. Yet God in his kindness sent Christ to tabernacle among us, to take on human flesh, to exodus, to depart through the cross to accomplish salvation for his people. Secondly, when you read your Old Testament, you have to handle it carefully. Some of the old ceremonies, some of the old rituals were shadows and they, they passed away. But don't discard what is still binding today. But also don't put on yourself the requirements of an Old Testament shadow that's no longer binding. You have to know the difference between the two. And that takes careful study and consideration. And then lastly, read your Bible because it points you to Christ. Christ is not in every element of the tabernacle, which some people claim, because the New Testament doesn't tell us that. But the tabernacle points us to Christ. And that's how we need to read our Bible, because he is the one that deserves all of our focus when we read. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for dwelling among us through your son, taking up human flesh. Thank you for his exodus to the cross, his death. And then on the third day, he rose again and transforms human history. He establishes the church. 
He sends the Spirit to give life and understanding to His people. And so, Father, as we open up the Scriptures, we need to be transformed and set free by Christ. And we also need Your Spirit to teach us. Help us to, to read our Bibles carefully. Help us to read them with the, the ultimate goal of knowing You better because you have, showed, you have shown us what You're like. You have demonstrated your character. You have exposed our condition and our need for a Savior. And even those of us who are in salvation and have been adopted into your family, Father, we, we still desperately need Christ every moment. So thank you for his mercy and his patience with us. And as we gather as your people this morning, we pray that we would give you worship and honor your name. So, Lord, thank you for the Bible. Help us to be people of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.